Our epistle lesson is found in Hebrews chapter 10. We are reading verses 1 through 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have... You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come this morning, we come to you poor and needy, and we come confessing that it is in your light alone that we see light. And so, God, we ask that you would allow us to see wonderful things in your word today, that you would guide us into all truth by your spirit. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Over the past few weeks, we have been looking at the idea of worship and what it looks like to truly engage with God in spiritual worship. And we've seen that that involves us really in two realms, in kind of formal corporate gatherings where we offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving and praise to God. And also then it involves us and invests us in a life that's offered to God as a sacrifice itself. And whenever we speak of worship biblically, we have to operate with those two things in mind. And so today we come to Psalm 40, where we'll find both of these elements once again intertwined with one another. A life offered to God in obedience and sacrificial obedience, and a life offered to God where there is a sacrifice of praise offered to him in and through Jesus. As many of you know, I share a name with a well-known Christian statesman, His name, obviously, is Chuck Colson. He served as special counsel to Richard Nixon during the 1970s, if you're unfamiliar with those events. He was convicted of several accounts of corruption surrounding the Watergate scandal. The most common question that I am asked in life is, are you his son? Well, then, are you related? And when I answer those two questions, no, there's a third question, what were your parents thinking? (laughs) At the end of the day, when I was born on December 27th, 1975, Chuck Colson was really not that famous. He was more notorious and forgotten because he was heading to prison. About that time, he had converted to the Christian faith and was deep kind of in his private 
uh, the privacy of, of the prison, and he was growing in his understanding of all that God is for him in Jesus. So he then becomes a well-known author post my naming, and he becomes a spokesman for the Christian faith. In fact, when I was born, uh, my name wasn't really that uh, known for being identified with Chuck Colson. My mom does call me Charles. Um, it's not Charles, Charles. But when I was born, my dad was the local high school football coach at Anson County High, and uh, he was a well-known football player in the state of North Carolina. He had played at East Carolina University. And I was due in early January 1976. This is when I was to be born. But then I came on December 27th early. So the Anson County newspaper did not have a tremendous amount to report on, so I made the headlines for the very first time right at the end of 1975, and the headline read, T.D. Colson. Of course, what they were celebrating as a TD was a tax deduction. Any of you with kids understand that, the importance of having that child tax deduction credit for, uh, for the year. And so, you know, this was what I initially was known for, but then I become identified with uh, the late and great Chuck Colson, and people would give me his books. So as a college freshman, I had several books by Chuck Colson on my shelf. And I have to tell you, I was not interested in reading them. I'd suffered so much on account of this name. You know, why in the world would I be interested in reading this? But I was stumbling around in my faith. I was struggling to orient my understanding that God loved me in very deep and inseparable ways through Jesus. And I was struggling to integrate that then into my life. And I didn't know exactly how to do that. And there was a book on my shelf titled Loving God. And I thought, that seems about right, but then it was by Chuck Colson. So I got over myself, and I decided to read it. But it was a book about, you know, instructing us and in what it means to then offer ourselves to God once we understand that we're loved by him, and we don't earn our way into his presence, that we don't gain his favor, but rather we offer ourselves in response to him, what it means to love him. And over the years since that time, I've been in any number of conversations with fellow Christians expressing this same sentiment. Chuck, I know that I'm loved deeply by God, but I struggle to know what it means to love or to worship God with the entirety of my life. How exactly do I do, I do that? And our psalm today offers one of the most profound reflections on what it means to yield ourselves to God as an offering. Spiritual service of worship as we read in Romans 12 and 1 and 2, but what it means to love God. And across these 17 verses, we'll discover the contours of a life that is yielded to God, specifically four contours that we'll focus on. The first being thanksgiving, second, listening, third, proclaiming, and fourth, calling. That what it means to yield ourselves to God, what it means to live a life of worship and obedience to him, in Psalm 40 is to engage in these four things. And so let's look at each of them briefly this morning. First, in verses 1 through 5, we see that there is the contour of thanksgiving. David begins, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. 
He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. Then following in verse 3, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. And so David speaks of a new song being placed upon his lips, but the content of that song is very specific. It's the specific content of the deliverance out of the miry bog, out of the pit of destruction. And so the new song is telling of the deliverance that he's experienced in the grace and the mercy of God. The song tells of God's work to draw him up out of the pit of destruction and out of the miry bog. This is the core and the heart of what it means to offer thanks to God That if we're going to be a people who engage in this task of thanksgiving that David here models for us in Psalm 40, it means that we have to be deeply acquainted with that work of God to deliver us out of destruction and out of the swamp. And people generally struggle with thanksgiving because they don't want to dwell in the swamp or dwell upon that pit of destruction. We struggle because we do one of two things with that miry bog. The first is we tend to minimize it. That is, we just minimize the problem of sin. And the second is that we tend to get paralyzed by the problem of sin. Now, here's what happens to Thanksgiving when we minimize the problem of sin. We're not incredibly grateful. We don't understand the swamp. And so to have our feet put upon solid ground we don't really find ourselves that overwhelmed by it. We minimize the problem of sin, and so grace is actually not that great. It's not that profound. But friends, this is where we always have to be reminded of who we are before God. This is why each week we walk through that sequence of entering God's presence, and then in the presence of that holy God, we confess our sins to him because we recognize that without the intercession of Jesus, without him mediating for us, without going to the Father in and through Jesus, that we can't be there. That our sins testify against us. They cry out against us, and we need someone to handle those on our behalf. And there's only one who is qualified to exhaust all of that condemnation, the one righteous offering who stands in our place. And friends, at the heart of Christian thanksgiving, there is a deep knowledge of sin, but then an even deeper knowledge of grace. But when we minimize that problem, our thanksgiving will also be minimal as well. Now, the second problem is that some of us don't struggle with minimizing it, We're just simply paralyzed by it. That when we really look at ourselves and we look at our problems, they just seem too deep. We don't struggle to call it a swamp because we know it's a swamp. It's a miry bog in which we feel stuck. And we think that God can never love somebody like us. That God would never want to engage with somebody like me. That no one around me really needs to know or understand what's going on in my life because they would think it's disgusting. That you feel lost and you feel stuck. And yes, you know the depth of the problem of sin. But you think you're beyond the help of grace. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel. That we're never beyond hope because we're never beyond the help of God. 
that God sends Jesus into the world, and when he comes into the world, he fully identifies with you, and he fully identifies with me, and then he stands in our place. No matter the depth of those sins, no matter what has been done, no matter what that bog looks like or how deep it is or how much it stinks, he is the one who can pull you out and deliver you because of his once-for-all offering, standing in your place, the righteous one, without sin, who alone can exhaust the condemnation of God and his wrath and his judgment. And as we sang this morning, justice smiles and asks no more. That no matter the depth and all of our paralysis that we can feel because of sin, we can look to Jesus. And friends, it is those who look from that bog, who look from that swamp, who know what it is to have their feet put upon solid ground, to know what that experience is. It's those who engage in the new song, who celebrate who give thanks, who have a heart that's free and light to do so. So this is the first contour of the Christian life, is offering thanksgiving to God because of the awareness of the grace that he's shown us in Jesus. Now second, in verses 6 through 8, we also see that there's listening. Verse 6, in sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted But you have given me an open ear, burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. It can seem here that David is dismissing the whole sacrificial system of the Old Testament. He was speaking against the empty rituals of many of the Israelites who were engaged in hypocrisy. That is, they would come to worship, they would make the proper sacrifices, but their lives were not yielded to God in any way, in any shape, in any form. It was a dead orthodoxy. And so he speaks of the importance of obedience here and of listening carefully to God's word and to what he has revealed. In sacrifice and offering you've not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. The original language is actually slightly more graphic that God has dug out or God has, better yet, bored open your ears. (laughs) He has given you ears to hear. He has given you eyes to see that this is the work of God's grace, freeing us to hear him, freeing us to receive the good news of the gospel, freeing us to receive his commandments as good boundaries that lead us to flourish and lead us into wholeness and life. And so David recognizes that he's been granted an open ear in order to listen. And then he commits himself. Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. And friends, this is the shape of the Christian life. That obedience is not something to gain God's favor. That obedience is not the way that we mass up some accomplishments that we can then put a claim on him and say, you're obligated to love me now. But no, obedience in which we offer ourselves to God, in which we desire to walk in his will, even though we'll do so imperfectly, that is the reflex of one who knows what it is to be drawn out of the bog and have their feet set upon the rock. Those with a new song in their mouth We ask God to lead us in his truth and to teach us 
as we sang from Psalm 25 this morning. This is the shape of the Christian life, is that God's deliverance of us in Jesus produces thanksgiving, and it bores out our ears in which we desire to hear. Knowing his mercy and salvation, we listen because he believe, we believe that he has our best interest in mind, that when he commands us something, he never gives us that command in a way to harm us. And so we see that there's listening as that con second contour of the Christian life. Now third, in verses 9 and 10, we see that there's also proclaiming, if you follow with me there. I have told the glad news of deliverance. In the great congregation, behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. It's just so interesting to follow the order as these contours flow, as the psalm takes shape, that we move from this initial thanksgiving and then we move to this listening, and now we move to proclaiming. And we find that this doesn't happen just in the private sphere, but now we're in a corporate context in which the glad news of deliverance is being told to the great congregation, that it's being shared amongst the community. And friends, this is the shape of the Christian life, that when we are affected by the gospel, when we've been drawn out of the swamp and the bog and our feet have been placed upon the rock, when we know that all that God has done for us in Jesus, we begin to speak of that. And many people become paralyzed because we think that work of speaking has to be the work of a professional. We think that we're not trained and we're not therefore qualified to speak to someone else. And we've overcomplicated the matter vastly. <laughs> Because what's happening here is just simply a doxological sharing, a praising of God. It's like the blind man. They said, well, don't you know what he said and what he's done and that that man is evil? He says, I don't know. I just know that I was blind and now I see. That's his testimony over and over in John chapter 9. And friends, this is what we need to get good at is celebrating the glad news of deliverance, commending Jesus to others, whether we feel trained in apologetics, whether we feel trained in social theory and interacting with, with people coming from a post-Christian culture, it really doesn't matter. It is commending Jesus and all that he is to other people. Taken captive by grace, we don't conceal it from others. And this reflects that simple dynamic that is part of our humanity, that when we cherish something, it overflows in our conversation. Several years ago, my father-in-law, as he retired, became overwhelmed by Pilates. The, fa the family enjoyed a good deal of laughter at his expense. But he began to experience some real, vital benefits. He lost weight. He was fit, strong. His reports from the doctor were better. He was experiencing all kinds of benefits. There was a communal interaction. He had made friends. We didn't ask about what pants he wore or anything. But he commended Pilates. He almost had me ready to sign up. Almost. Almost. The pants did me in. 
But friends, this is what we do. When we love something, we talk about it. We commend it to other people because we find it so valuable and it's good and we've tasted it. And so, of course, we tell other people about it. And evangelism is no more complicated than that. It's knowing that God's taken you from the bog. He's pulled you out of the pit. He's put your feet upon a rock in Jesus. That you have a firm place to stand, not because of your own record, but because of what Jesus has done for you on his behalf. This is what it looks like to proclaim. Now finally, in verses 11 through 17, we see that there's this final contour of calling on God. If you begin with me there in verse 12. David says, for evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. And then moving into verse 17. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. And up to this point in the psalm, if you felt like you just simply can't attain to what's happening, to that idea of offering thanks, of listening, of proclaiming, perhaps here you can begin to understand the concept that that all felt like too much and that you're not qualified to do so, please recognize that this psalm is not a psalm of the self-righteous, but rather this psalm belongs to the humble sinner the humble sinner in the middle of trial and trouble. Even though he knows the past deliverance of God in which Jesus has come into the world and Jesus enters our life and takes our sin and bears our shame and we are given a new name in front of God and we are called righteous. Not because we are, but because he is. But then we recognize that there is ongoing trouble. Evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. I wish we could get amens. (laughs) That's the context of your life. There we go. That's what it feels like. And friends, in all of our thanksgiving, in all of our proclaiming, in all of our listening and desire to be obedient, we're also going to have this. There's nothing dichotomous about that. We're going to have our failures. We're going to have our sins. We're going to have our unfaithfulness. We're going to feel that our iniquities have overtaken us. But the reason that we can acknowledge that to God is because we also know the truth of verse 5. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. But yeah, our sins do add up. But what's being said here is that grace multiplies. And multiplication is greater than addition. That yes, you have your failures, but God has placed his stamp of approval on you in Jesus. And so you are free to come to him in all of your trial, in all of your ongoing trouble, and call on him to invoke his name, to say, God, I need your help. And this is what he delights in. This is one of those contours of the Christian life is that he wants you poor and he wants you needy. That is, he wants you spiritually poor and he wants you spiritually needy. To come to him and say, I have no resources, bankrupt, 
And that's the right place. Not for the person just who converts to Christianity. That is the right place for the Christian in their ongoing walk with God. Poor and needy. Calling on God, asking for his help. And so this is the shape of the Christian life. is one that offers thanks, recognizing the gift that is given in Jesus to draw us out of the swamp of sin. It's one that listens, that healed by the grace of God and set upon the rock. We want to do his will because we know his commands are good. Even if we struggle with it, we devote ourselves to him. We also want to proclaim, we want to tell that to others. And then we're also going to freely call on God in the middle of all of our trial, in the middle of all of our trouble, so that we're not proud because we know that any help we can have is found there in him. But how exactly do you engage all of that? It's one final aspect of this psalm that's important for us to highlight, and we read about it in our epistle lesson. If you'll turn with me to Hebrews 10, that these words in their full context and meaning and all the intent of God are not simply those words of David or our prayers. But in verse 5 in Hebrews 10, we read that consequently when Christ came into the world, he said, and he then quotes from Hebrews, I mean from Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first, that is with the sacrifices, in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And friends, this is the definitive statement that yes, we desire to do God's will. But the only reason that we're inclined to do that will, the only reason that we have ears dug out for us, bored out to hear God's word, the only reason that we offer thanks, the only reason that we're interested in proclaiming, the only reason that we're interested in calling upon his name for help in our present trials and troubles is because there was one who came who did his will and did it without exception. They didn't try to barter their disobedience into the deal. They didn't try to negotiate their repentance. They didn't come with a half heart. They didn't have their secret deeds and hidden sins. And he offered himself as a pure and clean and blameless sacrifice. And what the author of Hebrews tells us is by that will, by that perfect will that offered himself, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And sanctification here in the context of Hebrews means that we've been set apart. We've been called gods. We are declared holy. We belong to him. And that's the truth of your life. No matter where you are today and how you feel about it, if you look to Jesus, this is the truth about your life that he, you, have been sanctified. You have been set apart for God. 
He has called you holy and made you his own property, that you belong to him. And now the gracious shape that he is working in your life is to offer thanks, is to listen. It is to proclaim and is to call on him. This is what it looks like to worship God. This is what it is to love him. Let's ask for his help to do so. Let's pray. Father, this morning we acknowledge all the ways that we can overcomplicate the Christian life, all the ways that we can also distort it, messed up views of sin, messed up views of ourselves, messed up views of self-righteousness. We ask for your help, that you always and constantly remind us of your love that has been poured out into our hearts through your spirit, to know your overwhelming victory against our sin in the cross of Jesus. And may that lead us to give thanks. May that lead us to listen well. May that lead us to proclaim and to call on you in all of our trouble. Help us to be poor and needy, always coming to you. May our confidence lie in Jesus and in no other place, the one who offered himself through his perfect will, through his perfect sacrifice, and has reconciled us to you. We pray in his name. Amen.